listening to the Sermon Podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Know that grace, peace, mercy, and hope are yours from the triune God. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, up hanging out with my dad and my brother, and my dad was telling me a story about a wedding he attended a couple of years ago. The groom was a classmate of my brother's, and so he was just a, a year younger than me. And the groom, he was born and raised in Granby. Um, and if you've never been to Granby, it's uh, where I grew up. It's a typical small town in the mountains. People up there enjoy the outdoors. They have relatively little interaction with people who aren't like them. And every once in a while, someone will lose their mind and do something crazy like, say, build a tank out of an earth mover and go on a rampage through town. True story. After some complications and misunderstandings about the time of this wedding, my dad and later my brother arrived at the appointed spot in the woods for the exchange of vows. Now, the dress code for these kinds of events can sometimes be a little tricky to discern. But my dad thought that he was safe wearing, you know, a pair of jeans, some boots, and a nice shirt. Unfortunately for him, he found himself out of place among the other wedding attendees, not because he was over, not because he was underdressed, but because his choice of attire was a little too formal for this particular occasion. The family of the groom uh, was perhaps the most prolific hunters I've ever known. If it moved in the woods, it was a good, ch- good chance that they were going to take a shot at it. And so it made sense that the appropriate attire for the exchange of nuptials was camouflage of some variety, of course. Those without camouflage were a little like the man from today's parable, except for the fact that they were not sent out to the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, but maybe that's only because they were already in Granby. (laughs) As I read this parable of Jesus this week, I had a hard time wrapping my head around it and trying to reconcile my image of a loving God with the image of the king in this story. Let's admit it. Jesus tells a whopper of a story this week. And the three parables that come in this section of Matthew's gospel get gradually harder and harder to understand until we finally arrive at this one. And what a bizarre story. The king sends out invites to his son's wedding and the invitees refuse to go. When the king sends some slaves to go get the invitees, they mistreat and even kill them. I was thinking to myself, that's a pretty drastic way of RSVPing no. (laughs) Then the king gets angry and lays waste to the whole town, another drastic way of dealing with conflict. And he tells his slaves to go gather up anyone who's out and about because nothing says let's have a wedding like utter destruction. At this point, I'm guessing that those that survived the fire, the murder, and the mayhem didn't didn't put up of much of an objection to attending and may have even offered to bring something for the banquet. (laughs) 
Finally, the wedding takes place, and the after party is going down when one person is found to not be wearing the proper attire, you know, because maybe his house had just burned down. As punishment for this atrocity, he's bound and sent off to Granby, I mean, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is the Bible's shorthand way of saying, a place you would rather not be. That, my friends, is what the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Thanks, Jesus, it clears everything up quite a bit. Now, just like last week's parable of those pesky, wicked tenants, this is a a story that has been used quite well to undergird anti-Semitic perspectives and practices. A typical read says that God extended an invitation to one people that over time that people violently rejected God and and then God discarded them, even burned down their city and has extended a new invitation to a new chosen people. That invitation doesn't mean this new chosen people can live however they want, though. There are still expectations, and there's still the chance that you're going to be cast out into the outer darkness if you don't conform and obey. This is such a typical interpretation of this parable that the footnote in one study Bible we were looking at in text study this week simply read, This parable should be taken as a warning. No other explanation. (laughs) This is just a warning not to screw up. But what if the whole point in Jesus telling this story to the religious leaders and those who are around wasn't so much to point to the power of the king as it was an invitation to take note of something deeper in the heart of God? What if it wasn't to be heeded as a warning about what was to come, you know, destruction and a new religious order? What if instead Jesus told this story so that someone might take notice of the one who was cast out? What if instead of the king being a stand-in for God in this story, the king was actually anyone at any time who has used the power and influence they have to do violence to others and to cast out those who were different? After all, the king in this story isn't the nicest guy around, and those who eventually accepted the invitation to the party might not have been the merriest of revelers. How could you be after seeing what the king was capable of? Jesus' life and ministry were all actually about the power, all about those who had the powerful had cast off and turned away and denied a place at the banquet of God. Not only that, but in the end, his power is made perfect, not by, the, by way of a violent takeover, but as the cast out one the one who is stripped of his clothes and mocked. Jesus' own forsakenness does does end in him being literally stripped bare of his attire, but it also continues as he is stripped of the very life that he tried so painstakingly to share with the world. Jesus, the forsaken one, seems to mirror the one cast into the outer darkness more than he does the king or the newly married son in this parable. But his forsakenness on the cross is not a place of powerlessness as it might be for any one of us. His place on the cross is the ultimate place of power, where God's love is embodied most fully. It is the place where all of our forsakenness, all of our shame and guilt, all that would stand as a barrier between us and God and us and our neighbors is fully embraced in the outstretched arms of the incarnate 
forsaken God. It is the place from which we receive new vision, new life, and new hope. So for those of us who have felt the sting of rejection at the hands of those who should love us most, parents, pastors, siblings, friends, for those of us who have been denied entry to the banquet of God, for those of us whose lives look like the mayhem and destruction of an angry king, there is good news. All of it. All of our brokenness. All of who we are. All of what we call life is embraced in the cruciform space of Jesus' broken body and spilled blood on the cross and in the feast which we celebrate in this space every week. And the really cool thing is we don't have to worry about what we wear to this banquet. We don't have to worry about saying or doing the right thing at this table. We are asked to come as we are, bringing all of it to the one who was rejected in order for us to find new life and new hope in the heart of God. This, my friends, is indeed cause for rejoicing. And this indeed brings the peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen.